Welcome to East Meets West. It's the podcast where Rob and I discuss contemporary Canadiana from our adopted homes in Ottawa and Calgary. How you doing, Rob? 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 Oh, great. Rob's not here this week. Damn it. Is anyone else here? <coughs> Wait, where am I? It's it's Sunday morning, right? Mike! Yeah, it's Sunday morning. It's it's uh it's it's usually East Meets West time. Oh, wait. What, what happened you, to Future Chat? I, I'm here for Future oh Chat. Oh my what god, I'm supposed for? to be at Future Chat. Where's Future Chat? Where's Rob? Hmm. Well, I, what do we do now, Nick? You know, you're here for East Meets West. Rob's not here. Should, I guess we'll just keep going on, on East Meets West here. I guess we're... Uh, this is East Meets West, Western Bias Edition. That works for me. All right, I'm good. Rob's in New York, I think. Yes. And how do you discuss contemporary Canadiana from New York? You you just can't. He's he's actually more east than he normally is. So east. Yeah, actually. Easter. 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 Easter meets west. But he's not here, so <laughs> we, that doesn't even matter at this point. All right, so uh, I, I don't know sorry, how this usually works. Chat. I'm I'm usually here as a as a listener, so this is this is new for me. Yeah, so this is uh, this is usually the part of the show we call follow up. Okay, and I believe you are brand new to East meets West. Yes, I I believe so. We've done fake it as a as a a group. We've done future chat, of course, but this is my first time appearing on the epitome of canadian media content <laughs> known as Take east meets that, west cbc yeah speaking of we're open to syndication so any of our unwind <laughs> media shows yeah mm-hmm. so having very little to follow up on between the two of us and oh wait words words are hard rob please edit this out I suppose we could just uh, move directly to news, notes and talking points. Sounds good to me. So the first thing I wanted to talk about this week is actually a story from several weeks ago. Did you hear about the report that said CP Rail's fatigue or and uh, just employee practices represented an immediate threat to public safety? I didn't hear that exact quote, but in the past year to 18 months... I had been hearing reports of that type of stuff going on within just the rail industry in general, besides, aside from CP, CP obviously be the bigger, if not biggest one, I think VIA would be the other one, at least for Canada. And mm-hmm. yeah, my, or my understanding. Uh, oh, CN. Are they still around? Yeah. CN actually owns the rails that VIA operates upon. Uh, okay. So yeah, my understanding is that it's a fairly large issue this uh driver fatigue I, even in the states has been a big thing i think there's a one in new york or new jersey or whatever where the guy just rounded this corner at like 120 kilometers an hour and oh wow um, yeah um but yeah there's there's incidents like that every so often that it calls into question the state of the driver's kind of awareness yeah and i remember actually talking to 
a guy who had gotten into NDT after working in the rail industry for a while. And like the reports that went along with this, uh, with this news story were things like, I don't know, people coming out from the woodwork saying, yeah, so you'd be on standby for like five, six hours. And then they'd ask you to go on a 16 hour train ride or something like that. He said, yeah, you're really tired by the end of that. And that basically that pretty well matches up with what I heard from the X rail guy. Like he was saying, you know, you, you think you've been tired before. Oh, the rail yards, you get really tired. Yeah. And it's, it is concerning because you're like, yeah, you are needlessly tiring out your operators, which just blatant invitation for operator error. And at the same time, they are piloting how many tons is it? Actual oh, tons of train and material and <laughs> yeah. everything. Yeah, it's uh you would rather they were well rested, much like doctors who are also overworked and overtired frequently. Or I was gonna say doctors, no, that's pretty much <laughs> You want doctors to be well rested. I was about to say you want your lawyer to be well rested too, but that's <laughs> a different sort of immediate threat to one's personal safety. Yeah. So, what was the context that this this quote was made about being the immediate threat? Did something happen that kind of initiated this this quote? Well, that was that was based on a uh. Let me find the. Actual quote here. Federal Rail Safety Inspector Todd Horry sent CP a formal letter last Thursday identifying working conditions that he says leaves crew leave crews unable to get proper sleep or to predict their work schedules. So when he says it's an, an immediate threat to safety, the Transport Canada order requires CP to remedy the situation immediately by Point one, including all travel time from CP from CP rest facilities to train terminals when calculating the length of an employee's on-duty time, allowing employee to re- the employees to rest if the train they've been waiting for gets canceled, and improving the accuracy of train lineups so employees can better predict their next next on-duty shift. And I guess this is just like, you know, this has to happen. It's probably already happened mm-hmm. under ideal circumstances. Just because, yeah, you're endangering the public at this point. So you got to get that together, please. I know oil field work is kind of similar, but not as uh, extreme as far as the length of shifts that are being worked. Like usually oil fields will at least have, you know, two 12-hour shifts. So you're regularly getting 12 hours in between your next shift. But as far as days off, you often... You know, a lot of them are consultants and contractors that the labor laws are a bit less defined when it comes to hours worked in a row or days worked in a row type thing, I think. Like as far as having days yeah. off between shifts type thing. But because a lot of these these wells, like you could literally work 24-7 going from well to well and not get any days off. A lot of people do that. Um, so that's kind of, but I think the safety accountability is a lot higher in oil and gas just because, at least in Alberta anyway, because you have the, uh, 
the AER doing their own oversight. And then just, mm. there's a lot of like, just the companies themselves, like they're bigger companies that they take uh, HSE quite seriously. And there's a lot of them. So whereas with this, there's, you know, CP Rail, as we were talking before, like they're kind of one of the two or three only companies in Canada operating trains. So there isn't a lot of accountability on that end, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And for those listeners who might not know what it means, what is HSE? Health and safety and environment, I think. (laughs) Yeah. The third one is environment. (laughs) Okay. I knew health and safety, but yeah. Yeah. Health and safety and entertainment. (laughs) Wait, that is ESPN. Never mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so (laughs) that's, uh, that's where that's at. And I guess on that note, tell, tell me again, how trains are safer than pipelines. Just go, go, let's, let's go over that a little bit. Cause that, that's, that's another thing that's been in the news this week or at least last week, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, I know you guys talked about it last week, but Kaya's well-pointed criticism of my rant on that was that it was, pretty much basically what rick mercer said and i'm not too upset because i agree with him on almost all his points about the energy east pipeline and so you're right it is interesting that we are having such a visceral debate over the energy east pipeline carrying oil from the oil sands to refineries in the east and then i think they're going to tidewater in new brunswick but uh ice-free tidewater, mm-hmm. which is very exciting, apparently. Apparently, that is a big deal. Icebergs being what they are. Yeah. Did Did you guys talk about Brad Wall's map graphic of the equalization payments last week? Uh, we did not. Okay. Hey, you, you saw that, right? The, yes. Yeah. I also saw the nice little graph you made on the subject but i was on mobile right so i didn't actually get the full brunt of that okay so for listeners who don't follow all of our facebook conversations um brad wall i don't know what actually precipitated the whole mapping debacle but he busted out some maps of how much each province has gotten in equalization payments since the start of the equalization program. Well, he first did it and, for 2016, 2017 saying, Hey, Quebec, you know how you don't want us to run this pipeline? Well, look how much money you're getting this year from us, essentially us being Saskatchewan, Alberta and BC. And, uh, yeah. So then people called him out saying, Oh, well that can't be totally representative of, how it is you know what about since the payment started how much money have they had since then it's like oh well you ask okay here's the map and it was just as indicative as the first map so ah kind of yeah that that's how that came up um and so you ended up doing a population adjusted map well not a map but numbers a breakdown how did that look because i couldn't really read it on my phone okay let me okay so the the numbers that Brad Wall gave for uh, the payments received since 1957, uh, which was the start of the equalization payments, uh, was $25 billion for Newfoundland, 
9 billion for PEI, 44 billion for Nova Scotia, 43 billion for New Brunswick, 198 billion for Quebec, 17 billion for Ontario, 46 billion for Manitoba, 8 billion for Sask, 92 million for Alberta, and 3 billion for BC. Uh, so after seeing those numbers, it was like, okay, that's pretty self explanatory. You know, Quebec gets a lot of help. Uh, the East in general gets a lot of help. Uh, but I and, you know, a couple of my Facebook uh, acquaintances slash friends had wondered what that would look like if you broke it down on a per capita basis, because, you know, the East is very heavily weighted for the population distribution of Canada. Yeah. So yeah. it it makes sense. Like they should get more money if there's more people to support, which I, I don't argue with at all. So I got, I was curious too, and I had a couple hours on Friday. So I went to StatsCan and got the census population numbers. And I just want to say <laughs> briefly, I just yeah. want to jump right in and say, isn't it wonderful that we have friends like Mike you say, you know, I have a few hours on hand. I should do some math here. <laughs> I, I, was, I thought you were going to say, isn't it great that we have that data available publicly for people to use? But Yeah, isn't that nice? <laughs> that- and soon we'll have another long-form <laughs> census and we'll have updated, accurate information because yeah. it'll be mandatory again. Yeah. Well, even Brad Wall's maps, like those those values are cal- were get taken from Finance Canada. So I believe those numbers are available somewhere if you do some digging but they're public and you can find them so you can recreate the exact same maps that that he made or that his team made i don't think he was the one that made them but uh really for all we know he could have <laughs> i don't know do politicians have staff is that a thing they have <laughs> so uh okay i guess as a background bradwell is the premier of saskatchewan so for those who don't know but if you're listening to this you probably do um, I was going to say, I can't imagine that you're listening to this and you don't know who Brad Wall is. <laughs> uh, so anyway, back to what I was looking at with the population breakdown. I took the population numbers for the census data. I interpolated in between the census years for a per year population and then summed up the population per year and divided the payments received per year by population per year to get a per capita annual number. Um. And then breaking that down, it kind of puts it even into more perspective that you have Newfoundland receiving $807 per person per year. Obviously, this isn't going to the people per se, but it's kind of a, yeah, it's no, a metric anyway. What, I think it's provincial trans. It, it's funny because I remember people complain about like money being taken from the province and then they go, no, 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 no. It's not the province that loses the money. It's the people of the <laughs> province. And it's like, what do you mean? Isn't that the same thing? No, no, no. It's very different. So it comes out of the personal income taxes, not the like budget of the province. So yeah, but, and then it gets transferred to provincial yeah. budgets so that they can offer, uh, what is it? State of living. What am, what on earth are words today? Standard of living? Quality of life? Yes, yeah. that's the one. Standard of living. Mike, yeah. I have a confession to make. I uh, I planned Kaya's birthday party for y- last night, and there were refreshing beverages, of which I might have had a few. <laughs> and I stayed out well past my normal bedtime. 
So this is what I've been reduced to. That's fine. That's what I'm you here ha- for. You have my apologies. The the listeners have my apologies. Rob, who will eventually edit this episode because neither of us do that sort of thing. <laughs> he has my apologies. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. But you were saying population adjusted standard of living. Standard of living. Yes. So. Yes. That's what we equalize. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you have 807 to Newfoundland, 1,223 to PEI, 873 to Nova Scotia, 1,055 to New Brunswick. Uh, those are kind of the big kind of per person, per year uh, payments that are made. And then Quebec yeah. is 503, Ontario 30, Manitoba 730, which that surprised me because... Yeah, I would not have seen that coming. Manitoba's cumulative population over those 60 years is only 63 million people. Like their population's been a solid million to 1.3 million for the entire province. Wow. Yeah, I, that's outstanding. That's <laughs> Toronto has more people than Manitoba. But see, but, this like, is- the the greater Toronto area has more people than Manitoba. Yeah. By several factors. Yeah. You're like, you know, by not just double. Well, Saskatchewan is uh, as well 1.1 million right now is their population. You're kidding. Yeah. Calgary has yeah. more people than all of Saskatchewan. Wow. <laughs> That's so when you when you hear about I mean I knew they were I knew they weren't really, you know, booming in terms of population, but huh. Yeah, when when you hear about population density numbers in Canada being up there in the, you know, you can barely see anyone if you look all around you. That's kind of where that comes from. So uh yeah, but that being said, Saskatchewan only, only had $140 per person per year for the adjusted well, number. So they're riding yeah. high on potash. Well, as I understand. they've got their oil too. I remember, I remember actually running some potash samples in um, when I was at SGS Lakefield, and it was it was neat because you know these little really pretty pink samples would come in, just pink powder, and we do the loss on ignition analysis on it. So you, yeah, you'd like just put it in a thousand degree furnace and then see how much it weighed before and after. Yeah. Science. Oh, Serious science that went on. Naturally, there were more specifics to it and they're all public or publicly available because that's how SGS does things. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm trying to keep trade secrets. It's just that I don't remember exactly what we did for it. Right. Yeah. But I remember, I remember a couple people saying, "Hey, you garden, don't you, Nick?" And I go, "Yeah, yeah, I garden." You know, this is potash. This is like actual fertilizer mix. Just sprinkle that into your compost if you wanted. <laughs> but, huh? I hadn't thought of that. Well, Saskatchewan has radioactive materials too. They have mines, radioactive. Yeah, mines up north. And I've been, you know, huge proponent. Of- <clears throat> Sorry, huge proponent of nuclear for a while. And one of the pros for nuclear power in Ontario is that Ontario actually has enough uranium to produce the entirety of the demand with, you know, increasing demand 
adjustments for the next century or for about a hundred years. But like that said, they don't actually use Ontarian uranium in the Ontarian nuclear power plants because it's cheaper to mine it from Saskatchewan and get it shipped over. <laughs> so it's like, that's interesting. We're not even using the Ontario uranium yet right. just because it's easier to get to in Saskatchewan. Right. But yeah, like I remember going to visit the university of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. Wait, it was po- university possibly Regina. You might've been in. No, I was in, I was definitely in Saskatoon. Yeah. The other one's university of Regina. Okay. I think that's how that works. Okay. I was just trying to remember which was right. The, the, which was which. Yeah. Cause like here we have university of Calgary and university of Alberta because <laughs> Because of course, Edmonton just got everything. (laughs) Stupid Edmonton with its stupid face. They can have the politics. I feel as though I feel as though we got the last laugh, Mike. Because yeah, exactly. Out at the downtown, and it doesn't make me want to kill myself because it's not all gray. It's true, and I can see I can see the Rocky Mountains from my apartment. So yeah, you know, there's that. We don't have the refineries or all the money that flows from that. But hey, sure is pretty. (laughs) Uh, Where was I even? University of Saskatchewan. How did we get here? Yeah. So I was thinking about both uh, University of Saskatchewan and Western University. And I remember looking up Saskatoon and London statistics and going, huh, those are comparable cities in terms of population and then i looked at it huh saskatoon and regina are like the big deals of saskatchewan and london is kind of an afterthought in terms of the the ontarian metropoli yeah i think london's motto should be not the england one because every time (laughs) there were (laughs) There were so many times when I told people, oh, I'm going to study in London. And they went, wow, that's so cool. And I'm like, no, 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 not that one. They're like, what? You're not going to London, UK? It's like, nope, London, Ontario. There's a London, Ontario? Yeah. <laughs> and that was how that went. Yeah. Um, oh, I actually talked to a customer the other day about London, Ontario. Oh yeah. He was talking about, you know, being from Ontario cause we're talking about snow because they were just wicked storms over there right now. And I told him, yeah, I was in London for a year and he goes, Oh, I am so sorry. And I laughed and laughed and laughed and said, it's nice to hear other people say that. <laughs> cause I feel like it's always me that's ripping on London. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so as far as radioactive materials refining, is that all done at the mine sites or does that have to get shipped somewhere to be refined? I do you know? don't actually know. Although the refining process for the Kandu reactors is much less than, I mean, either other places or if you were making a bomb. Okay. The concentration of fissile uranium when you're actually like when you actually dig it out of the ground 
theoretically speaking, you could just stick that into a can do based on the fissile percentage alone. The only problem is there's a bunch of junk in there that'll act as a neutron moderator and slow everything down. So you have to, you do have to refine it, but it's less enrichment and more cleaning. Okay. Which I suppose you could argue is two sides of the same coin, but, or no. Just same part, part of the same process. Yeah. Yeah. You could say enrichment is just cleaning out everything else, but it's less demanding right but i actually have no idea where that takes place hmm. and i just a good question. trying to compare it to oil refining because like you you talked about how it's cheaper to ship from saskatchewan into ontario like oil's the same way like we have to ship it out of alberta and then re-import it back in because we don't have the refineries at least the refinery capacity actually i don't think we have it don't quote me on this, but I don't think we have any refineries right now. I'm fairly certain uh, we don't. I don't. I'm just going like, off complete, uh, you know, casual. What do you call it? But I have been down refinery way in Edmonton. And it's like to quote the irrelevant show. It's even more beautiful than it sounds <laughs> like there's there's upgraders that upgrade the crude to a sellable product. But as far as refineries, where it actually turns it into petroleum products, I. But they might. I. I think we'd have at least one, if not a couple. But I just yeah, know that I'm, I'm not sure. The one they were planning on building up closer to Grand Prairie, uh, they, that was a big deal because it was like, oh, we'll finally be able to refine our own crude. But maybe that maybe that's for follow up next time. Are they actually? going for a refinery up near grand prairie that was well grand prairie ish region at least that way i don't know if it's right near there but that was part of the ndp platform was instead of supporting keystone was oh we'll just build a refinery here so that oh we don't have i thought it was i thought it was further south it might be it's but it's further north than calgary and definitely north of edmonton yeah but also I do have a running bet going with Derek from, I want to say Derek from Veristablium because I listen to Hello Internet a lot, but it's not Derek from Veristablium. It's Derek from the liberal campaign. Do you mean Veristadium? Vestibulium. What? Veritasium. Yeah. The actual channel is Veritasium, but they, they, Brady Heron purposefully Uh, mispronounces it every time. Right. But yeah, um, that'll be hilarious to those that listen to this show <laughs> and the internet, all five of them. Um, but I have a running bet with Derek as to whether ground will be broken on the new Flames Arena or the refinery first. We've actually yeah. both both said, no, it's definitely going to be the Flames Arena. So either way, we're going to go and drink. <laughs> You'll just have the satisfaction of winning if you do. And yeah, is it a we'll, bet we'll if you're both betting for the same thing? Or share in our joy. It's like betting against the world, maybe? maybe. Kind of. Who gets sorta? Who gets the money if you lose though? I guess either we will buy our own drinks or buy each other drinks. Sure. That that works. 
Sure. Yeah. Although I will, <laughs> I, I am kind of cheesed that Grand Prairie was like, Oh, an oil refinery. That sounds like a great idea. Why wouldn't we want one of those? But they said no to a nuclear reactor. I, I imagine there are the same exact arguments for, you know, for and against a refinery and a nuclear reactor. But, you know, well, that's cool. That's fine. Whatever. Yeah. So this has been fraught with rabbit holes. Which <laughs> a little bit. Is basically the purpose of this show. But do you feel we've gotten somewhere on... The first note and talking point. Yeah. Mm, I think that's probably good. We've probably covered it. I think. Alrighty. I think so too. Pipelines. We are pro pipeline. Anti. Anti tired people operating trains. <laughs> Bold stances once again here on East meets West. <laughs> now to something a little more controversial. You got some JT news. We're not talking Justin Timberlake. <laughs> no, we're not. He, what, uh, what do you have, Mike? I saw this yesterday, or at least past couple days, that one of the Liberal Party's very big platform points was that they're going to balance the budget. God dang it. All these other parties, they can't balance any budgets. We're going to balance the budget, though, by the end of my term. And surprise, surprise, this week... We're we're putting the brakes. We're we're backtracking a little. We're saying, "Hey guys, turns out the economy sucks." So yeah, no no, no more balanced budget, and the first deficit is going to be ten billion dollars. So yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> well, no, because that that wasn't that was a progression, like a long progression. Like at first, they were like, "Ah, oh, balance, whatever." But one of their first big platform points during the election campaign was we're going to run modest deficits of $10 billion for, I think, three or four years. And then, honestly, like this was one of the funniest things that Stephen Harper did during the campaign, I thought. He gave a speech about it. He said, and our opponents say they're going to run modest deficits. Little, little teeny tiny deficits so so small you almost can't see those deficits and just making fun of them and i thought that was hilarious but yeah so has he said we're not we're not balancing by 2019 no which i don't think <laughs> I, I don't think that should come as a surprise to anyone because anyone who's in tune with how the economy is should realize that you know, as as people so like to eloquently describe the the budget doesn't balance itself. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard, I heard that one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, so yeah, things have not gotten any better since the election. No, it's just kind of steadily gotten worse. And all the news stories I see on the matter are, hey, you know how bad it is now? <laughs> Buckle in, because not getting any better for a while, kids. No. On, on the bright but, side, the provinces are getting injections of money 
as a result of this deficit, they're running for infrastructure and and that type of stuff, which obviously means job creation and all that kind of stuff. Standard of living increases yeah. and whatever. So Calgary could get their green line. Yeah. Which is, you know, arguably, by there, I mean, our. Yeah, it is. It is yours now. I, I've noticed that you yeah. that you haven't really fully adopted Calgary as your home. It's true. It's it's only my adopted home. No. But I don't know. I still I'm so happy with this city. Especially especially when it's like minus thirty at home, back home, out east. Or out east, <laughs> as the locals would say. <laughs> and here it's like a balmy six degrees it was 16 like three days ago i I remember telling people that i was like finally telling people that i decided i was moving to calgary and it was in september and calgary had just had a snowstorm and people looked at me and went nick are you sure this is what you want Yes, I'm sure this is what I want. But I mean, the winters are less intense. No, it's true. Far, by like a good margin. Yeah. So I'm it's, I'm pretty happy with how it's gone. Yeah. It's a dry cold. It actually <laughs> is. Like the first time I heard someone say, "Yeah, it's cold, but it's a dry cold." <laughs> I remember thinking, "That is the stupidest thing I think I might have ever heard." <laughs> But then I got here and like you just dress in a couple layers and you're fine. I remember going out in minus 30 wearing like my plaid jacket, which is just a fall jacket back east and a hoodie under that and, you know, like a long sleeve shirt under that and being out in minus 30 and going, I'm actually quite warm right now. This would not happen elsewhere. And Kai notices a big difference because when she used to get home she'd have to like go take a shower or something like that to finally warm up but you get here and you just kind of shake the snow off and you're good to go it's beautiful yeah less heat capacity to the air yeah yeah <laughs> uh but yeah balanced budget that's uh yeah not happening no, not happening but but that's okay you know Living in Canada, the governments that you elect here, you don't really expect super tight fiscal policies to to, <laughs> to the point to the point where you balance budgets at the expense of things people need, so to speak. Yeah, like the only time I can think of that happening. I mean, Harper balanced his budgets. But oil's at one hundred twenty dollars. Most part, yeah, that's true. You know, when oil was triple to quadruple what it <laughs> is now, um, yeah, he was doing fine then. But I'm trying to think. Apparently, the '90s were really bad, like for government services, hmm. because I guess the debt levels were getting just out of hand, and so it. In, you know, kind of an ironic twist, it was the liberals under Jean Chrétien that just viciously slashed services 
to try and get the <laughs> deficit under control. And there's, there was actually a substantial body of work during the financial crisis of 2008 where people were saying that, you know, the reason that Harper had so much wiggle, wiggle room financially was the work that Martin did, essentially. Martin yeah, being the finance right. minister. Oh, at the time. I was going to say being the predecessor as prime minister. No. Okay. No. I was like, he didn't do that much. Yeah. Martin, <laughs> Martin presided over probably the biggest screw up of the liberals' history <laughs> and allowed Harper to do his work because he got voted out so hard. Wasn't Stefan Dion the fall boy for the liberals? Uh, Martin lost. Right. And then, but, and then it was Dion. Yeah. And then it was Ignatieff. Ignatieff was never interim was, prime minister, was he? He was the liberal leader during an election. But at one point, oh no, Dion never was prime minister. No, oh, no, okay. no. I've, okay. Because it's actually... At the time when Dion lost and then he stepped down, uh, he was one of only two liberal leaders in history that didn't become prime minister. And then they added Ignatieff and Bob Ray, I think. And so there's only four times in history that's ever happened. And three of them are in the last decade or so. <laughs> Which is, yeah, is a for the political party that was actually the most successful federal party of the 20th century, pretty big black eye. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so how do you how do you feel about the fact that there will probably not be a balanced budget by 2019? Being in a provincial region that would benefit from additional spending. I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with it. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a reality. Like you'll have good years and you'll have bad years and you just hope that more good years will follow this, this time, I guess. And, and ideally because of the way our tax structure is the tax burden because of the deficits should be at least distributed in a way that's fair and not too bad, at least for people in my slash our uh, income level and demographic. W would you agree? Mm -hmm. I'm fine with it, honestly, because I'm a big fan of Keynesian economics and the only thing being you you got to make sure that you're trying to rein in spending when times are good, but it ends up being counterintuitive because nobody wants to rein in spending when times are good. Mm -hmm. But our debt to GDP levels are good, which is, you know, the biggest thing you look at in this kind of situation. Mm -hmm. It's actually interesting because when I first learned about debt to GDP, it's funny because you can look at the national debt of Canada just ticking up, 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 up. But at the same time, if you convert it to 
a debt to GDP graph over time. It's been pretty steady for the last while. Right. Because they just decided, okay, this debt to GDP level is acceptable. Let's keep it here. Maybe pay it down or let it go up during bad times. Well, it's it's like with any business, right? Like if you, if you want to make more money, you've got to spend more money. That's the kind of of mantra in that sense. Like, depending on how the business is being run. well of course like it's got to be a yeah a structured and responsible spending because i was gonna say like there are there are some companies that it's like an editorial cartoon where they have you know the executives up at the stern of the ship and then one person working the paddles right and they're going i don't understand it we've cut so many costs <laughs> yeah. why are we not going faster <laughs> Right. Well, but, yeah. Yeah. And for those that may not know, the debt to GDP ratio is just, you know, the government debt, but divided by how much money the government is actually making in, you know, all of its, all its revenue streams. Wait, hold on. Are, are you saying the debt to GDP ratio is a ratio of debt to the GDP? Yeah, craziest thing. <laughs> but trying to trying to put this in layman's terms, the best example I've heard is you would rather, let's say Suncor, you would rather Suncor owed you a hundred dollars than a four year old owed you a hundred dollars because the debt is the same, but one of those parties is much more likely to be able to pay you back. Right. Yeah. And so that's what we mean when we talk about debt to GDP ratios. That's a good analogy. I like that. I, I like it a lot. It makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. Yeah. yeah four-year-olds are uh, four-year-olds are great big stiffs. They don't have any income streams. Their financial markets are usually based off of lemonades or selling chocolate bars for exorbitant prices. <laughs> But yeah, so while we're talking about a lack of balanced budgets and how we're going to have sort of Keynesian spending over the next while, apparently some of that money will be invested in alternative energy. Yeah. And my goodness, um, who is it? What am I thinking about? Oh, yeah. Alberta. Alberta could definitely use some Keynesian spending. So for those of us not familiar with what that even means, what is Keynesian spending? Ah, yes. Keynesian stimulus. Uh, I can't remember whether this is supply side economics or not. But the idea being that the economy is kind of based on aggregate demand. So it's not so much how much money corporations have or something like that. It's how much money is out there for people to spend on their products. So in good times, you know, they're just, you know, it's fine. It's wonderful. No one's unhappy. But in bad times, the idea is that if a government or substantially big organization ends up funneling money into the economy, 
you get not only a bunch of people with money in their pockets who can then spend that on other things. The idea is that you have a multiplier effect. So if a government spends a million dollars or something like that, because that puts money in the hands of, you know, people like tradespeople or contractors, whatever, they end up spending that money on a bunch of other stuff. And then that puts money into other people's pockets. And I think by the end of it, they say that government spending of about a million dollars would actually be equivalent to just giving a bunch of people $1.2 million Hmm. because the money changes hands so often. Right. Well, ideally if you're injecting that money, say yeah, into infrastructure, like you're going to build a new road, the companies that are contracted out to build the road are paying their own people out of their own pocket that didn't originally come from the government. So I think that's where the multiplying effect comes from because the government spending encourages private spending. That's kind of been somewhat subsidized by the government spending kind of like. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, and even that, like there are a couple other things that have multipliers associated with them. One of them being beer actually. So, Beer has like a 1% multiplier on it. Wait a minute. I think it should be 1.02 billion, not 1.2. I was going to say that 20% is pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, 20% is high. It's like 2%. Okay. But apparently beer has about a 1% multiplier with it. Okay. Because beer is made with Canadian grain, often Canadian grown hops, if not, it's not a huge deal because it's not the bulk constituent of most beers. Right. We make the glass or the cans in Canada. We have all the transportation yeah. networks in Canada. We have all the retail in Canada. Canadian water too. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. Which is actually not trivial now that you think about it, when you think about it. Yeah. But uh, it has a 1% multiplier associated with it. So when people talk about propping up craft brews and micro or nano brews in Canada. It's a good idea because it actually stimulates the economy. Hmm. We get, uh, we get lots of people drunk and enjoying themselves and in the process, everyone's spending money and drives the economy forward. Yeah. And yeah, like you are spending a bit more on the micro brews you know, it's anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar per bottle more. But for mm-hmm. one, they taste way better than a lot, if not most other, you know, macro brews, I guess you'd call them. Quite um, often, yes. And uh, yeah, I guess you've, there's, I feel a bit more of a personal connection with the brewery when I buy, you know, a, a lo- at least a local, if not a micro brew. Cause I, I don't have, is Big Rock still considered a microbrew? I think they are. It's the, it's definitely a craft thing, but it's getting bigger yeah, and bigger. They're definitely distributing to a lot is, more places, but I know, at least in the States, there's a specific like volume d- definition for what defines a mi- microbrew versus a macro. And I, I th- Oh, yeah, yeah. I think... We have that here, too. Yeah. It's uh, some number of hectoliters. Yeah. So 
I think Big Rock is still they're definitely on that bubble. I think though, because and for mm-hmm. a good reason, because they're really good. Yeah, well, I mean, they started up as little guys and then did very well, yeah. and grew and grew and grew and driving the economy forward. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is. I actually had a Big Rock brew last night, the Scottish Heavy. Oh, nice. Yeah, big fan. Yeah, I had the I have in my fridge right now. I have the Big Rock Winter Ale sample pack. Oh, yeah, it's quite good. I was not aware that was a thing. Yeah, they had it at the Sobies down here. I was pretty impressed. Oh, I love the Sobies liquor store. Yeah, they're they're actually a very very good selection. I find. Yeah, I've been just a couple times when I've had access to a vehicle and just I randomly selected that one to go to because it was close but their beer selection is fantastic yeah like that is just an argument for privatization right there yeah that said apparently that gets contentious with different people but they're not on the air right now (laughs) uh but yeah i think you're you're trying to segue into alternative energy and I don't know. If yeah, I totally yeah. was. But then we talked about beer, which is a yeah. different kind of alternative energy. That is. It's a it's a necessary type of energy required in in a lot of aspects. But. Yeah, I actually saw a graphic this this week or or this past week or the week before reverse oxed week. Um, it was talking about all the solar and wind potential in Canada. And it's funny because like the Great Plains and the prairie being the prairies, that was where you saw the majority of all the solar potential in Canada and is actually why I enjoy living in the Great Plains because it's sunny and I like the sun and you're not so viciously depressed when winter rolls around. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love sunny winter days. Those are like they're crisp and bright blue skies. Oh, and, it's gorgeous, isn't and it? And if it's kind of like hovering around that zero mark, then it's like warm enough to enjoy the weather, but you still get that crisp winter feel. It's mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. beats it. Yeah. And it's just so depressing, especially when you're right on the lake or something in Ontario, because it just, it is cloudy all the time. Unless it's a rare occasion where it gets just really cold <laughs> and it's a high pressure system that moves through and clears out all the clouds. So I'll, I'll actually walk around on those days all happy because it's sunny outside and I like the sun. Yeah. And I'm like, it's so sunny, guys. This is great. And like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's so cold out. Yeah. I, I've quoted this before, but I read somewhere that Calgary is the sunniest city in Canada. Sunniest major city in Canada. And I also like that near the summer solstice, it's still, it's still twilight at about 11 at night. (laughs) It's just amazing. Yeah. Like I, I remember telling people from, london about how sunny it was in calgary in the summer and they kind of oh yeah you know sunny whatever sunny really late that's great 
But I finally sent them some snaps of the sky at 11 p.m. in June. And they were like, oh, my God. How is how is that even possible? <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. I'd say it would be great for gardening, but it also gets cold at night down here. Yeah. And my pepper plants do not appear to enjoy that. No. But they're loving the sun, so that's good. So you are actually planting them outside? No, I've got them in pots, okay. but I kept it outside on the pa- or patio balcony last year. Right. And didn't go so well. Hmm. We planted a couple, one down in a garden in the southwest at uh, Kaya's cousin's place. And I kept one out on the balcony here. That one ended up dying just for watering reasons. Mm -hmm. But the one from the southwest survived. And I've got it. I've had it in a couple upgraded pots because it's getting bigger and bigger. And it's recently been upgraded to a new pot and there's a bunch of new growth on it. Can you not get, and it's still winter. So I'm pretty excited. Can you not get like mini greenhouses that you could keep on a balcony to put a couple plants in? Or is that not a thing? Well, you could, I think they're called like Kalsh maybe. Like I'm imagining a hamster cage sized greenhouse. Yeah. Yeah. There are things like that. But um, I think part of the problem with this balcony is that, you know, it's about four feet high, the rail, and it's all concrete. It's all totally opaque. So there's almost no sun getting at the plant during the entire day. It gets maybe, maybe half an hour to an hour of direct sunlight when it's actually sitting out there. Right. And granted, when you when it gets the full spectrum light, that's better than, you know, inside fluorescence or something like that, usually. Or indirect light. But I've had it in front of the southern window we have. And it doesn't get the full spectrum because it's going through glass. But it ends up getting, in the winter anyway, it's been getting about six hours a day of direct sunlight. So... I think you got to take the six hours of not quite full spectrum over the one hour of full spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it also seems to be growing much better in the winter than it did in a full summer. So I'm assuming the temperature consistency is preferable for a tropical plant. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's crazy the amount of consistency in the tropics. Like when we were in the Dominican a couple weeks ago... Oh, yeah, because that's why there's been no future chat. Their daytime highs are 28 degrees, and their overnight lows are 26. It's Wait, what? Daytime highs are 28, their overnight lows are 26. It's, it's oh, literally okay. the same temperature all the time there. Wow. <laughs> so I remember when Kai was in French Guiana, she was telling me what the weather forecasts were like. And it was, you know, the same thing every yeah. day for weeks on end. So they tried to get poetic about it. It was like, some clouds will be moving on through, <laughs> through Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But then we'll return to the, you know, nice sunshine or yeah. whatever it was. 
Speaking of sun, did you take a look at that imager link I sent you guys on Slack? About oh, uh, on Slack? About the Calgary solar guy. Here, I'll, I'll send it to you here. This should go in the notes. P.S. to Rob. Okay. Oh, Rob has access to this. It should be yeah. fine. He knows what I'm talking about. Um, but a guy in Calgary uh, signed up for the NMAX solar panel program. And uh, he was curious at how beneficial it was, you know, payback period and actual power generation, all that kind of stuff. So the way that theirs works is that... Um, the, so NMAX contracts out a company to install the panels like they have a list of companies that you can use and so they get put on your house and so the power gets used by the house first and the excess gets sold back to nmax um there's no battery storage with this program that they have i don't know if you're able to buy you know like a power wall and use that in conjunction with their system but based on this guy's summary that there's no there's no battery storage with this program uh and he was saying that what they found is that even on a day when they produce more energy than they use, they still have to buy from the grid, obviously, after sunset because they're not making their own energy. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's part of the battery storage aspect is that if you're able to stop to have access through the day, then that stuff in the battery gets used at night when there is no sun. And what NMAX, uh, their deal is that they sell back to the grid at the same price that they buy from the grid which is actually a pretty mm. good deal. Um, but when they buy from the grid, they pay an extra six cents a kilowatt hour in transit transmission charges. Mm. So that's kind of the long and short of, of the, of the kind of financial deal. And then he has some numbers here as far as, you know, total power used, total power generated, total power sold. Um, so they ended up having an excess, like a net excess of, what was it? So they end up having like an annual savings of a hundred bucks, but that, that doesn't, so, but that's not counting the upfront cost of actually getting this system. Right. Right. Cause I'm looking in here and it says the payback period is, or at the current electricity rates, the payout period is greater than 30 years. Yeah. Which is okay. ridiculous because at that point I, you almost wouldn't even consider it being an investment really like. Yeah. Um, and that's, I don't know if you're familiar with the program in Ontario, but it's very controversial at least. Okay. Among my family members. Oh, like and- the off peak on peak aspect of it or for solar? No, no. Uh, the, there's a program. I don't know if they're still doing it, but it's called Microfit or something like that. Uh, if you're a small producer, so if you have a small solar, if you have solar panels on your roof or you have a small solar farm or a couple turbines, whatever, they really subsidize the electricity when they buy from you. It ends up being very lucrative hmm. to to the point where like the payback period is i think 20 years to break even maybe 
No, it's got to be lower than that. I think they're paying like they give you 18 cents per kilowatt hour when you're one of the small producers. Hmm. And they're doing that because they're trying to invest heavily in new power capacity in renewables rather than build, building another coal plant or something like that. Hmm. And it's really controversial because energy prices have gone up because they're paying all these small producers and you know, that's a thing, but the investment is such that you get these small, small companies coming up that will offer to build a barn for a farmer. All they say is, Hey, we'll build you a barn and we'll cover the roof and solar panels we get the revenue from those solar panels for the first 20 years. And then the barn and the solar panels are yours. And the farmers look at that and go, that sounds like a great deal. I could use a barn. (laughs) And I mean, the producers are going, yeah, it's a great deal because we'll make money for 20 years. (laughs) And, or they'll, I think they get past the break-even point with that, and they make some amount of money, but they right. did a lot of that for a while. Well, they don't need to lease any land to build a solar farm if they're doing that. Well, like, that's that's yeah. the thing, because you just hook into the grid. Yeah. And, yeah, you have the room on a barn. Hmm. Interesting. So people are upset that this is a thing? Yes, because it is expensive. And... Ontario is very industry heavy, like manufacturing heavy. And so high energy costs are not necessarily the greatest thing for the Ontarian economy. Eight. That said, given the state of the Canadian dollar, I mean, manufacturing costs are going to come way down because of, you know, labor costs because we're paying people in Canadian dollars. So we'll see how that goes in the next while. Yeah. But yeah. What, uh, so I mean, yeah, sun in the prairies. That's the thing we talked about. Yeah. And where it's dark and cloudy, there tends to be a lot of wind. So that's basically the rest of the country. <laughs> Especially coastal areas. Like there's a lot, it looks like there's a lot of room for um, wind generation on the East Coast. I'll see if I can find this this uh, link that I have and I'll put it in the notes somewhere. But there's got to be some baseline. And I've been a big proponent of nuclear power for fulfilling that baseline. What do you think, Mike? Because I know you've you've been in touch with some people who have a different idea for that baseline capacity. Yeah, well, with a lot of with a lot of drilling for oil and gas, you get to depths that are close to the, I guess, geothermal reservoirs. Uh, when you start getting to the three thousand to five thousand meter depths, you start tapping into the the high, what's considered high pressure, high temperature regions in, when you're talking about oil and gas. And that's related to the geothermal gradient. And once you get, you know, even deeper than that, there's actual reservoirs of water that are, you know, hundreds of degrees Celsius under high pressure. So tapping into those reservoirs allows you to generate 
electricity through geothermal uh, by using that water to heat a, another lower temperature flash fluid that spins turbines. And then that water gets recycled or reused, I guess, back into the same reservoir to get reheated and kind of do the cycle all over again. And that's something that at least one, if not more, advocacy groups are pushing for within Alberta is to convert a lot of these oil and gas wells that are either owned by operators that, you know, have produced all the oil they can. So now they're just either sitting dormant or they're producing water already. And they're like, let's turn these into geothermal wells. Uh, so at that point, you don't even have to drill new wells. You can just use the wells that you already have that are close to these reservoirs and generate electricity from them instead of just having them sit there. Wait, 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 wait. Mike, Mike, Mike. Does that does that sound reasonable? Does does Alberta have a lot of holes around it, that can be used for that? That's a that, very good question, we don't Nick. Have, do, we, do we actually have that much oil drilling in Alberta? Surprisingly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh are we good at drilling holes in the ground for geothermal wells yeah. i don't know that that's the case e- even more surprising is how many of these wells are just sitting there not being used and put and sometimes don't even have a an operator because that operator has since gone out of business and they're just hanging out and i guess property of the province at that point to deal with now, now i actually had no idea that this was the case because from everything I'd heard the like the geothermal schemes were going to revolve around drilling a bunch of new holes but I had not thought at all about the number of holes we had I suppose I should call them wells but <laughs> got a bunch of holes yeah. we could use some of them holes we, 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 holes are just sitting there doing nothing currently we call them holes it's you, you fit in okay. by calling them holes <laughs> oh solid that's yeah. good <laughs> It's funny because they're the industry terms that you use when you're actually presenting to other people, and then they're the colloquial terms. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, yeah, there's a. It's kind of a multifaceted attack or proposal, I guess is maybe a better way to describe it. So, you know, these advocacy groups will go to these operators, say Husky or, or Suncor, and say, "Hey, you know, you have this well here that's." producing a bunch of water or just not doing anything and it's very close to this geothermal reservoir what would you say if you just you know dug you know a thousand meters deeper sometimes a lot of time even less than that and you have this payback in electricity that you can you can generate so uh so basically you're approaching suncor and max husky those kinds of people maybe not N max and being like hey no would you like to make money by drilling a hole in the ground? <laughs> like, but oil prices are low. I can't make money by drilling a hole. It's like, oh, but you can. Yeah. No, exactly. Like, a lot of these wells are around urban centers. So as far as transmission, they're already close to the populations that you're going to be distributing electricity to. So it's it makes sense that you can put these, you know, geothermal electricity power plants in around these wells because it's not like you're having to transmit a whole bunch and you're going to have a hard hard time getting access to the the electricity market. And yeah, it goes back to that baseline because um as long as there's heat in the ground it's going to keep producing electricity. Hmm. Yeah, I I was trying to do some reading on geothermal just in general to get the energy return on invested 
percentage of return on energy invested from it. But that's not really a – it's not easy to do that with geothermal because the energy return – it's like with hydroelectric. It gets better and better as time goes onward. Yeah. Yeah, it takes an initial investment, but after that, you don't have to do anything to it. Yeah, and there are some odd things that will happen. Like, I guess if you're not careful, you can, I guess, pull more heat out than, or pull heat out at a faster rate than it's being replaced, and you can end up cooling the well right. and losing some generating capacity if you if you if you're pulling too fast, right. I guess. And yes, as with fracking, if you're not careful, you can cause earthquakes. <laughs> but I mean, so long as you're careful, yeah, it should be, yeah, it should be okay. Well, but see, they already do that with oil and gas reservoir modeling, like the rates at which they're able to produce without watering out too early or whatever kind of thing, right? Like, there's the optimal rates. Like, you can, you know, just open the floodgates on a well and produce a whole bunch right away, but over the long run, your net production is going to be worse if you do that versus if you kind of open the taps a little bit and let it just produce more consistently but at a lower rate versus mm-hmm. letting it rush all in but then dropping off right away. Because in the same way you have your your geothermal temperature you're trying to maintain, you have reservoir pressures that you want to to maintain. So if you just let it all flood in, you're not going to have enough reservoir pressure to produce the rest of the oil. Mm. Mm. Now, another thing I'll ask you because I honestly don't know. I know that some renewable mega projects from Quebec find a market in New England. And the transmission mm-hmm. costs there just get just stupid. Mm-hmm. But if Alberta were to start generating excesses, would there be a market south? to give that energy to are you are you being rhetorical in this question because no i'm I'm honestly asking because like i know immediately south is montana right and that's about as dense as alberta saskatchewan it's as dense as manitoba i think i think montana has a couple hundred thousand people in it okay and they recently dropped their they recently imposed speed limits. I know that much. So <laughs> now you are only allowed to go 90 miles an hour on Montana highways, which how do you get anywhere at those speeds? <laughs> I think population centers, you'd have like Washington, like below BC, but even then the population doesn't get higher until you get to the coast. So Okay, because I was wondering like, I mean, Seattle is a major urban center, but it seems kind of far away granted is that far away compared to james bay to new england far away i probably not that bad at that rate you may as well distribute to vancouver because vancouver is closer than seattle is. oh well there you go they also have a lot of hydropower the just british columbia in general Mm -hmm. because a lot of rain and mountains equals lots of hydropower they also have an apparently it's very ocean that they do (laughs) but i mean until they get a lot of tidal or yeah wind from the ocean front i don't know if they i don't know what their energy mix is like currently now that i think of it 
there's so much to learn about you know, energy policy and energy infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why it is the way that it is for me, but I just find a lot of it so fascinating. I, I, the big thing for me is that you take it all for granted and you don't realize how much goes into maintaining, like establishing and maintaining that infrastructure. Yeah. And there's even like little bits of it that is really interesting too. Cause I have at least one person on Facebook who is routinely very critical of the things that any government does. And they were saying that, you know, we're building all this wind capacity in Ontario and we're currently paying other markets to take away our excess energy. And I thought, well, that sounds like either a cherry picked or dubious claim. And so I looked into it. Did you know there are actually like energy exchanges, not terribly dissimilar? Well, I mean, they are dissimilar because of the nature of everything, but it's kind of like the stock market, but with energy, like different muni- or different regions or whatever, municipal not municipalities, but different government level things will sit around and try and swap energy based on who has excesses right this very moment and who has deficits right this very moment. And sometimes if you just have way too much energy for the grid you're on, you have to get rid of it somehow. So you pay people to take it away. Hmm. This just That's... happens all the time. Apparently like weird. Ontario did at one point pay people to take away their excess energy. But at the same time, they are also frequently paid to take other people's excess energy when they have an excess. And it's just crazy. What do you mean by take it away? So, say you are based on just a lot of solar power. Mm -hmm. And it's nighttime. And you, you have no energy coming in currently. So say next door to you, they've built a bunch of nukes and geothermal and they're going, hey, everyone's asleep. So we're covered, but we've got some excess energy. Here you go. And so you might pay them to get some excess energy. But the next day in Solar Town, it's a holiday. And the way people celebrate that holiday is by sleeping the entire day and not doing anything. But. This holiday happens to be especially bright and sunny. So, again, or in this scenario, you're generating by solar, but you have just a tremendous excess and you can't actually get rid of all the power in your grid. Like, you're, it's overpowered at the moment. So... Meanwhile, over in geothermal land, they're doing a bunch of stuff and they're running a deficit. So you'll say, oh, hey, we've got extra power. We'll sell it to you. But if you were generating just obscene amounts of power and the grid couldn't actually handle all that you're generating, you can pay, you could pay Geothermal Town to take the excess power off your hands. They might not need it at the time but you're spreading it over a wider grid. And so you're not risking burning anything out or something like that. I've probably just explained this terribly because I only have a fleeting grasp on the concept myself. Can't you just like leak off the extra energy? I don't 
No, because like I'm sure you could, but on these energy exchanges, you do run into scenarios where you have to pay other grids to take it off your hands. Hmm. Crazy. Right? And they, they must already be connected, these grids, otherwise. Oh, like the entirety of North America is connected, save for Quebec, because <laughs> of course they're on a different frequency, of course. Well, they, they can't participate in our lotteries or Tim Horton's roll up the rim contest, so <laughs> it makes sense that their their energy grids would be different too so <laughs> exactly <the same> way. <laughs> apparently apparently the reason that you always see the contests that say except quebec <laughs> the reason is the language laws oh, okay so they actually run things in parallel in quebec oh just okay. in a different language yeah yeah interesting so they don't as i mean they might miss out on a couple but they don't miss out on everything right it's just you need to do it in a different language. Okay, that makes sense because every time I see that, I'm like, man, that would suck to be there. Don't get anything fun. <laughs> yeah, what fun is there to be had in Quebec ever? <laughs> Montreal, known as, you know, the least fun city ever. It's true. Yeah, whoever has fun in Montreal. Is that a thing? I don't think it's no, a thing. That's not a tourist destination or anything. The Montreal Canadiens are notorious for having a very quiet stadium <laughs> yeah on game days the entirety of montreal is stone cold sober <laughs> yeah that's how that works yeah. i think to come back full circle on this alternative energy point my thoughts are right now if we're talking about our dependence on hydrocarbons for energy you're going to have to start seeing incentives and subsidies on the government's part to encourage not only corporate excuse me corporations the industry to switch over but for residences too so like you have companies like nmax or transalta or whoever their the energy provider is and they have their own power stations and that kind of stuff but as far as residential solar you know, residential direct heat, geothermal, all that kind of stuff. There's right now, like I looked it up the other day, there isn't a ton, if any, incentive out there for residences and homeowners to go towards alternative energy. And I think that's what's going to be needed if the goal is to, you know, hit these carbon emission targets and, you know, temperature, global temperature change targets. It's, it's not enough just to say this is what we need to do and just sit back and wait for it to happen. Mm, I, I, I don't think agree. so. Now, I do have a question for you because you're probably a good person to ask it. Uh, something I hear a lot is people demanding that we stop subsidizing the oil industry and take those subsidies and funnel it into alternative energy. Having worked in and kind of around the oil industry how much are they actually subsidized in canada do you know i i don't all okay. all i hear about is the royalties that they're paying to the government i don't know how much right, subsidizing yeah. and i honestly don't think that they'd be getting much more subsidized than just corporations in general get just for, mm. as far as tax breaks and that kind of stuff uh i i couldn't comment specifically on that but 
it, there, there's not enough subsidizing going on that we're hearing about it. I don't think. You know? Okay. Um, but that's interesting. It's just because I don't know. I find a lot of a lot of things end up mirroring arguments made in the states, but the United States is and remains a very different place. Yeah. Than Canada, so it's interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. Yeah. Like with the way the oil prices and the cost of getting oil and gas out of Alberta right now, you almost do need more subsidies and incentives for companies to actually develop the resources here because, you know, you're just seeing companies pulling out of Alberta if they have assets elsewhere, you know, whether it be the States or international or, or even Saskatchewan for that matter. And because it's just too expensive to produce the the oil and gas mm-hmm. here. So I guess we'll see where oil price goes in, in the future. But if it's, you know, a long-term, you know, 20 to $30 per barrel type thing, it's, it's not going to be, you know, that industry is not going to be sticking around too long here, at least not at the scale it was before. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing a, a graphic from the BBC somewhere. It not it great that I have all these links just on the top of my head, but <laughs> not actual URLs for them? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I think the BBC did one saying, you know, how much does it cost each place to make a barrel of oil? And in Canada, it's 40. It's 40 bucks to make a barrel of oil. It's And so, yeah. I mean, it's just we're not going to break even until we hit that point. And then you need some sort of profit incentive to keep operating. Yeah. Those those numbers you see thrown around on the news, like they're not take them with a giant grain of salt because okay. there's a lot of companies that depending on the play, like the resource, the area that they're drilling, the type of resource, um, how long it's been around, all that kind of thing, it varies quite a bit. Like you could probably come up with a bulk average, but Companies will always have assets that can be developed at, you know, eighteen, fifteen dollars a barrel price. Um oh, okay. like it's again, and that's part of where it comes down to they're not gonna be operating at the same scale. They'll have expensive plays that they need, you know, seventy dollars to develop, but they'll also have some at, you know, the twenty to thirty dollar range. So yeah, it averages out to, you know, that forty dollar value, but that doesn't mean that unless it's forty, you're not gonna have any sort of drilling or production. Hmm. Like I've you know, there's, yeah, there's some companies say, oh yeah, you know, we can, and the, the American dollar helps too, just the same way with manufacturing, with oil and gas, like they're selling their oil at US prices. So it, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that adds that, you know, 25 to 30% kind of bump into their, their selling price. I had no idea, yeah. but that's really exciting. Yeah, it's a bit, it huh. makes me feel a bit better that the price they're selling at is closer to, you know, $40. I'm laughing because I'm like, oh my God, the fiat currency is working. <laughs> it's working, guys. It's working. Uh, what's, what's the fiat screw currency? Screw the gold standard. Fiat currencies are those currencies which are not based on a commodity. So, I mean, for example, when we left the gold standard, we became a fiat currency. Did we leave the gold standard? Yeah. Like a long time ago. I thought the gold standard was still a thing. Uh, I mean, it's still a concept. Uh, 
But no, we we left it a long time ago. Okay. Um so I'm just organizing my thoughts briefly yeah. in my head here. So apparently I listened to Planet Money a lot, as you're aware, yeah. because we talk about that on Future Chat quite a bit. And they had a piece on what got us out of the Great Recession. And by us, I mean the States and kind of everyone-ish, sort of, kind of. And one of the issues with the gold standard is that commodity prices fluctuate. And so if, say... I mean, one argument is to say a gold meteor hits some country and all of a sudden they just become fabulously wealthy with uh, with gold resources. And they are all of a sudden the value of their dollar or their value of their currency just skyrockets because they have so much gold to back it up. And that's fine. That's one problem with the gold standard, theoretically, hypothetically speaking. But another problem is that if, say, you discover a giant gold mine and all of a sudden the value of gold globally plummets, that means the value of your currency has plummeted by the same amount. So, I don't know, say, you know, the cost of gold halves overnight through some crazy thing. All of a sudden, all the wheat you want to buy is twice as expensive. All the fish you want to buy is twice as expensive, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Across all industries so and everything. Yeah. yeah. And so your currency is just completely vulnerable. Right. And the other thing is you can't you can't really do any sort of fiscal stimulus or fiscal policy to help things along in the event of a great depression. Because if you just start printing more money and you maintain a gold standard, you get something like hyperinflation, like what happened in Germany where people would plaster their walls with uh, marks because they literally weren't worth the paper they were printed on or people would get paid with wheelbarrows of cash Hmm. because you know there was no feasible way to transfer that money to them otherwise so did everything else become way more expensive too like that was the idea oh yeah like well they started just printing money to pay off their war debt because they said you owe x number of marks and they said i'll show you (laughs) i'll print those marks but because everything was on a gold standard They just, the value of their currency plummeted. So like, yeah, you'd get paid with wheelbarrows full of cash. You would also go to the grocery store with wheelbarrows full of cash. Like it just, everything became wickedly expensive. And if you had retirement savings or something like that, they were effectively gone Mm -hmm. because the value of the currency was gone. Right. So long story longer We've moved to what are called fiat currencies. So they work a lot like the stock market, he says for the second time this podcast. But it's much more closely analogous to the stock market. So when you buy 
a commodity from a country, you pay for it with that country's currency. So one of the reasons that the Canadian the Canadian dollar has tanked is one currency traders and two I guess people aren't buying as much Canadian oil right now. So it's not being like there there's no demand for the Canadian dollar right now. Right. So the value of the dollar has gone down. Mm-hmm. Whereas previously when Tom Mulcair apparently rightly pointed out that we had Dutch disease when people were buying a lot of Canadian oil, the Canadian dollar was very high because a lot of people were buying those commodities. And so it ends up being kind of a self-correcting mechanism because right now Canada's economy is in the tank and our dollar has gone way down low. So, if you're to buy something from the states, like Soylent, for example, <laughs> right, is, the, yeah. is the painful reality that I'm looking at. Um, Soylent is going to come with an extra 30% tax on it just because you have to buy it in American dollars because it's an American product. And if they wanted to just sell it to you at parity, they would have to take that loss. And so because the dollar is so low, like manufacturing out east should see an appreciable boom or boon rather than boom. But because you're paying people in Canadian dollars to do the work, like outside or, you know, different countries or people with different currencies can effectively spend less to get that to get that product from Canada. And equivalently, it's almost like a protectionist tariff has just gone up around Canada. Like you could buy that thing from the states, but if someone in Canada is making a comparable product, you should just buy that one. Right. Because it's going to be like 30% cheaper. Right. Effectively speaking. Right. And so that ends up boosting the demand for Canadian products, which will then stimulate the economy and allow, you know, the Canadian dollar to come back up eventually. Right. Yeah. And some countries end up pegging their currency to other fiat currencies, but I don't think there's any major economy in the world right now that runs off of a gold standard. Right. I think Zimbabwe was the last to pin theirs to the US. Okay. Because theirs was the last hyperinflated currency. Like they had the ones with like the one trillion dollar bills. Oh right? yeah. I remember hearing yeah. about that. So then it was just recently within the last five years, you know, no later than that that they transferred over to the US dollar because so they had to put a buyback program of the Zimbabwe dollars to us. And then people obviously lost money because inflation, but at least now they're a more stable, stable currency. Hmm. But yeah, so that's Hmm. broadly speaking how fiat currencies work. Interesting. 
we have a fiat currency. Yeah. And fingers crossed, it is currently doing its job. Yeah. Like, I guess you'll probably also see more tourism in Canada or more filmmaking in right. Canada is another thing. Because apparently filmmaking hasn't happened nearly as much in the past little while because of the high value of the dollar. But yeah. Yeah. It's like it's back when they made that Simpsons episode where they came to Canada and they were at the CN Tower. And the guy comes up and says, just so you know, we're closing in about five minutes. And Homer goes, really? Would American currency change the closing times? American currency? Well, when do you want your breakfast? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> we're back in that territory yeah. now. I think now you're going to start seeing in a lot of stores, they'll say, oh, you know, we take American currency at par or, you know, 10% premium <laughs> or whatever, because these these yeah. stores don't want to mess around with exchange rates and all that kind of stuff, or at least have some sort of stability or certainty in their revenue, at least in tourist destinations, maybe just your average McDonald's isn't going to care, but. Yeah, actually another fun story about that. Back when, you know, similar sort of time frame when the dollar was around where it is now, my ex's family went down to the States and there was some radio show they were listening to and they were saying oh yeah we're live on location at blah blah come see us and so they went to see them and they ended up you know buying a couple just whatever things from them and they kept asking how much and they'd say you know it's whatever like 20 bucks or so and so they kept handing over canadian 20s but because the canadian 20s were green they didn't notice because all American currency mm -hmm. is green. Yeah, right. But so they were like, you know, they were pretty happy about it. And they're driving away and they were still listening to the radio show. And they, the guy comes on and goes, so uh, to my Canadian friends that just came to visit, uh, didn't realize you were paying me in Canadian 20s. So thanks, guys. That's great. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. So long and short, if you want to stiff Americans, yeah. try to use a 20. Well, they're green. It might fool them. Now, I mean, not anymore because right. we have plastic yeah. money, but well, and they look a lot different than they used to. Oh yeah, they do, yeah. they do look very different yeah. than they used to. Like they have the transparent sections yeah. now and well, they look like monopoly money yeah. now essentially do they, well i would argue they look less like monopoly money now than they used even to. fancier than monopoly money <laughs> you have to buy like a special edition of monopoly to get our currency <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah the old one used to look exactly like us almost like yeah the, the one with the much. queen on it or the i guess they all had the queen on it but yeah the 20s all yeah. have the queen but no uh, i wonder if they will after she dies That'll be interesting to see. Yeah. That's a blast from the past. That no kidding, eh? bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up totally, I just want to briefly mention one more thing. Have you heard of Letterkenny problems? I've seen 
commercials for the show. I think they were like promoted tweets in my Twitter feed, but th- yeah. it looked. I just I just found out that they were making a television show out of Letterkenny problems. Oh yeah, I've seen the previews for that. Yeah, I've seen the preview for that show. Because they started as just a series of YouTube videos. Oh, is that how it started? Okay. And I was their, not their biggest fan, but I was a huge fan. And to this day, when people talk to me about the Canadian accent, I'll tell them, no, no. If you really want to see a good example of the Canadian accent, go watch Letterkenny Problems. Back when Damagi lived with us, she's from Sri Lanka. We played letter cutting problems for her once and she just looked at it and shook her head and said, I, I don't understand a word they said because there's so much slang and the right. accent is so thick. And I've actually looked at the more recent videos they've come out with since Crave announced it was going to become a show. Right. And I'm not really as big a fan of those ones, but the classics are just, I'm such a big fan. I highly encourage you to go watch the oldest ones. So, okay. So we had, so you had trailer park boys as kind of like the uh, original kind of rednecky type, uh, show, but U S obviously mm-hmm. not Canadian. And then corner gas was kind of, or is kind of, they're still around, right? Maybe not. Uh, no, no they've been they, yeah, over for a while. So they were kind of like, the canadian equivalent like canadiana type show right well trailer park boys was canadian were they yeah it's based in nova scotia no was it actually yeah. oh crazy yeah. why did i think it was u.s weird i okay. don't know hmm. i mean i could see why you might make the mistake because of all the guns but <laughs> no, it's definitely canadian okay interesting anyway i guess more just evolution was and corner gas was kind of the next canadiana show but i guess is this one trying to be like a hybrid of corner gas and trailer park boys i could see that there's not the violence of trailer park boys <laughs> but there's the there's definitely the folksiness of corner gas right yeah that's what i'm gonna go with okay because I've I've watched Corner Gas. I enjoy Corner Gas. I've never seen Trailer Park Boys. I've oh, seen yes. I've seen Bubbles references and when you dress up as a Halloween costume reference. Yeah, I dressed up as Julian, <laughs> which was absolutely spectacular. <laughs> I was so happy. People, I'd like, yeah, I'd finish a drink and it was a pub crawl we were going on. So I'd be like, yeah, you know, bus is coming soon. I'll just wait it out. And people would go look at look at me and go, Julian, Julian, where's your drink, Julian? I don't have one. They're like, you come here. I'm going to buy you a drink. <laughs> so, I didn't even think of that. But it was the best unintended consequence of a costume ever. But did they think you were him? Is that the idea? Oh, no. Oh, okay. No. Right. They they were under no no illusions. Right. ah good times fond memories yeah yeah no letter kenny i was interested in in checking that show but i think it is a crave exclusive right yeah Yeah. but go to youtube there are still videos okay 
big fan of the older ones. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. So yeah, um, I suppose we'll wrap up now. I think so. Mike, thank you very much for filling Rob's seat. Not literally, because you'd have to go to Ottawa to do that. But Thank you for having me. The pleasure, pleasure is talk. all mine. Oh, it was a pleasure having you this week. And thank you so much to all our listeners. I don't actually know if Rob plugs anything at this point because that's usually his job. But thankfully, we have post-production for such things. Have fun with that, Rob. <laughs>